We recently resumed our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, uh, it's going to carry us through Good Friday and Easter, and I really believe the timing couldn't be better. Uh, last week, Pastor DC preached a fantastic message out of Mark 11, where Jesus cursed the fig tree, and he went into the temple and overturned tables, uh, the tables of the money changers. And uh, in chapter 12, there were additional uh, interactions between Jesus and the scribes, uh, Jesus and his disciples. And uh, the chapter ends with Jesus back in the temple. And he sees this widow, this poor widow, putting into the coffer all that she had. And Jesus honors her as a, 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 as a disciple, as a, as a woman of genuine and beautiful faith. Well, we are here now in Mark chapter 13. And our passage is a difficult one. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to say some very tough things that have led theologians to a lot of different interpretations. But this is why we here at All Nations, we practice expository preaching. It forces us to preach the whole counsel of God and not duck away from difficult passages. Okay, and so this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the scriptures, uh, but God has led us here to Mark chapter 13, and we want to be faithful uh, to preach it, to learn from it, and glorify God through it. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 27. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 27. We'll be reading the whole passage, so please give your full attention to the reading of God's word. It is the only perfect part of the sermon. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is given, to, uh, given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house or take anything else. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Amen. The word of the Lord. In 2011, a man named Harold Camping predicted the end of the world would come on May 21st. So May 21st. 2011. You may, be, you may remember seeing one of these billboards. Do you guys remember those? Yeah? Uh, at my old church in uh, West Covina, there was one on a street called Nogales Boulevard. So every day when I'm going to church uh, and every weekend, I would see that billboard and I would despise it. I would despise it. His campaign to predict the end of the world spent over $10 million. Okay? They spent $5 million on billboards alone. Not only was that a colossal waste of money, but obviously it was false. Uh, May 21st came and went, and then he had to backtrack. He said, actually, there was a spiritual rapture, but he said the real rapture, the the real rapture was going to come on October 21st, later that year. Well, October 21st, 2011 came and went, and then he tapped out. He said, oh, you know what, I, I shouldn't have been calling out days. But the worst part about the sign is that top left corner, right? The Bible guarantees judgment day, May 21st. And so not only is Harold camping an embarrassment and a false teacher, but but he claimed that the Bible guaranteed. And and so for me as a pastor, as, as somebody who loves and reveres the word of God, he has profaned the word by guaranteeing something that the scriptures never promised, May 21st, 2011. You may also remember a popular book series uh, called Left Behind. You guys, anyone buy that? Don't raise your hand if you have it. Uh, It's okay. Uh, The authors, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, they wrote 16 books, and the focus of that entire series was the rapture the end of the world, and the return of Jesus. They even made a movie about it. If you saw it, I'm not judging you either. Do you know how many books that series sold? 65 million copies. They sold 65 million books based on the Left Behind series. That's more than The Little House on the Prairie. Uh, that's more than the Hardy Boys. And I think my generation, everyone older, like, oh, I remember those. Uh, the Young Bucks are like, What? Yeah, um, but they didn't sell more than Harry Potter or um, Hunger Games or anything like that. But um, just fascinating, man, 65 million copies of that series. Uh, there's a website, and you guys can check it today and get on your phones if the sermon starts getting boring, um, uh, called prophecynewswatch.com, 
prophecynewswatch.com, and there are over 325,000 subscribers to this website who receive articles regularly about the end of the world. I do not recommend subscribing. But I just clicked through it, and some articles trending right now identify cryptocurrency as the mark of the beast. They identify the artificial intelligence as the Antichrist. Uh, Everything going on in Israel, all the conflict in the Middle East, they say these are signs of the end times. If there is one thing that a lot of Christians are fascinated with, if there's one thing that gets a lot of Christians excitable and fanatic, it is the apocalypse. It's the end times. People have quit their jobs. They have liquidated their assets. They have joined communes all because they believed that Jesus was coming on a specific day in a specific manner. They were misled by false teachers. And our passage today is one that many have used to make end times arguments. I mean, even when we read the passage, we instinctively start thinking about Revelation, and we start thinking about the end of days, don't we? Uh, I'm sure you guys went there, and, and when I read it, that was my first take. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to preach on the apocalypse, right? Apocalypse on Sunday, this upcoming Sunday. But actually, the more I studied this passage, the more I realized that Jesus actually has a different message, okay? The primary function of Mark 13 is not Jesus' disclosure of like cryptic doomsday predictions. Rather, his function, his purpose, is to promote faith, to promote obedience in his disciples during a time of coming distress and upheaval. If you read that passage again, you will hear Jesus' profound pastoral concern for his disciples. He was preparing them He was preparing his church for a future period which would entail both persecution and mission. You see, here we are, Mark 13. Mark only has 16 chapters in its gospel. Passion week is coming. Jesus knows his earthly ministry is coming to an end. And he is preparing his disciples for what to come once he leaves them. He's teaching them to count the cost of discipleship. He's teaching them to stand fast to stand firm till the very end. Also, I want to argue that the focus of Jesus' prophecies in Mark 13 don't immediately go to the end of the world. They are connected, but he's not immediately going to Revelation. Okay, verse 24 and 27, uh, he goes there, okay? But the bulk of the passage does not. So what is Jesus talking about? Okay, I'm I'm going to argue that Jesus is actually prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem. He's actually prophesying about the destruction of the temple, that great and beautiful temple, the hallmark, the centerpiece of Israel, that is going to be destroyed, and it actually was. It was destroyed just 40-some-odd years later after he gives this prophecy and prediction. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Now, the destruction of the temple is a foreshadowing, of final judgment, okay? It is a type, right, of the final tribulation, the end of the world, and his return. But it's a mistake to miss the primary focus. It's about the destruction of the temple, not primarily about the end of the world. It's a mistake for us to read everything in Mark chapter 13 and think that this is describing future events 
for us. Most of the passage is best understood as Jesus' prophecy to his disciples. So it was future for them because they were in AD 33. It would happen 40 years later. It's a future prophecy for Jesus' original audience. But for us, it's a fulfilled prophecy. It's a fulfilled prophecy. It's one of Jesus' prophecies and predictions where we look back and say, Jesus, you are right on point. You are right at every word. Your word was true. You truly are the prophet of all prophets. So how are we going to work through this passage? First, I want to connect Jesus' words to his original audience and show you where and how his prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70 with the fall of the temple. Now, just to be clear, I do believe Jesus is coming back, okay? I do believe we need to get ready for Jesus' return in glory, I do believe there will be a greater persecution and tribulation for the church before he returns. The book of Revelation teaches this in detail, but Mark chapter 13 is not focused on that primarily. It's about Jesus preparing his disciples for the tribulation they will face and the destruction of the temple. I hope that makes sense. All right, I hope that makes sense. Now, Tim LaHaye and uh, Mr. Jenkins and Left Behind, they would disagree. They would disagree with me. Uh, there are uh, many Christians who have a different position and different interpretation of this passage, but I believe uh, that um, from my study that this is a faithful and accurate uh, interpretation of this passage. If you want to talk about it afterwards, I would love to dialogue with you. And so uh, we're going to start with that, and then the second point, the second move of the sermon is, uh, I want this to be more than a theological history lesson. Okay, I'm going to throw around some dates, throw around some names, right? But I want to finish with uh, how this passage applies to our discipleship, how this passage uh, applies and speaks to our character, right? Uh, our commitment to Christ and our understanding of his promises um, and his worth. One author wrote, when Jesus talks about the future, his words are meant to change the way we live in the present, okay? When Jesus talks about the future, his words are meant to change the way we live in the present. And so brothers and sisters, context First thing we need to do is context is crucial to understanding a passage like this. You can't understand Martin Luther King's speech, uh, I Have a Dream speech, unless you're aware of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. You need to know context. You need to know the historical context of this nation and slavery. You need to understand the historical context of segregation that was going along, that that, uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement was speaking out against. If you don't know any of those things and you just read the speech, you're not going to understand the fullness of it. Uh, I watched The Last Jedi on Netflix by myself without my wife Alice because I knew she didn't watch The Force Awakens. It would have made no sense to her. I'm not even sure if she's seen the return of the Jedi. So she's not ready for the last Jedi. She didn't even know about like the first Jedi, right? And I, and I asked and I confirmed. I was like, hey, this morning, I was like, hey, did you watch the return of the Jedi? And she's like, which one is that? Is that the one with Natalie Portman? And I was like, no, no, no. But I guess Natalie Portman can get her to watch some Star Wars. But, uh, but I mean, just even in those simple and silly examples, we understand the importance of context. And we actually understand that if you want to get the, the, the story, the depth, all the dynamics and details of the story, you at times need to know the story behind the story. The story behind the story. And that's true for our passage today. 
Okay, so let's get into the text. Uh, I do recommend that you keep your Bibles open. I know we have this tendency to like, read it and then close it, uh, but I'm really going to be like working through a lot of the details. So uh, keep your Bibles open, and I'd love t- for you to see the connections uh, that I'm trying to make through this sermon. Let's begin with the beginning of the passage. Jesus and his disciples, uh, they are exiting the temple. And as they do, one of the disciples says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Mark doesn't name the disciple, but all the commentators think that this was probably Judas. Judas was probably like, man, this is an awesome temple. And Jesus, when you reign, this is going to be your headquarters, which means this is going to be our headquarters. What an awesome place. What an awesome place, okay? Uh, But that's speculative. Uh, Don't take that. Uh, I I don't guarantee it. I don't guarantee it. Um, And Jesus responds. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, in other places throughout the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the temple, he talks metaphorically. He talks about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days. What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the temple, okay? But here, Jesus is not talking about himself. He's talking about the physical temple of Jerusalem. Do you guys see that? The disciples said, what what an awesome building. What great stones. And Jesus says, those stones are going to be overturned. That building is coming down. It will be destroyed. Now, this was shocking to the disciples because they were still Jews. They still had great reverence for the temple of God. And so they ask him privately. They leave the temple and they go up to the Mount of Olives and they're looking down on the temple. And so... Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they ask him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, we need to ask, okay, what are they asking about? Are they asking about Jesus? When is the apocalypse going to happen? When is your final judgment going to happen? No, just read the text naturally and grammatically. When they say, when will these things happen, What are they asking about? The destruction of the temple. Make sense? They're saying, okay, you said the temple's going to be destroyed and the stones are going to be overturned. When? When is that going to happen? Jesus responds. He says, see that no one leads you astray. And then he describes the different tribulations the disciples will experience. There will be false teachers You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes and famines. Persecution will break out against God's people. You will be beaten in synagogues. Okay, those details matter, guys. You will stand before governors and kings for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to break down every phrase, but it's clear that there will be a great tribulation. There will be persecution. There will be trials before The physical temple of Jerusalem is destroyed. Now, right here, it shows how self-centered we are as Bible readers. Uh, I mean, if I didn't go into that great detail about the temple, the physical temple, the stones, we would have naturally read ourselves into the passage, our circumstances. We forget the question and we focus on the signs, 
We read Jesus' warnings, and we think about our current situations. False teachers? Jesus, are you talking about Creflo Dollar? Are you talking about Joel Olstein? We hear of wars, and we immediately think, today, Syria and the Middle East. Is that what you're talking about? Is, is this the fulfillment of Mark 13? Jesus' earthquakes. Maybe you remember those earthquakes in Indonesia and Japan. The earthquake that produced a tsunami that was so devastated in Haiti. Are those signs of the end? When we hear of persecution, we think of China, North Korea, different countries in the 1040 window. And because that's our natural, self-centered way of reading the Bible, that's why prophecywatch.com has 325,000 plus subscribers. We want to read these passages, look at our current events, and say, connect the dots. Connect the dots. Now, it's true that Jesus' warnings can fit any generation. I mean, has there ever been a generation that never experienced an earthquake? We're like California. Like, happens all the time. Has there ever been a time in the world where there was no war? There's always wars. There's always rumors of wars. Has there ever been a season where the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, have not been persecuted? Right? That's always been going around. So these warnings can fit any generation, but they best fit the first generation of Christians. Okay? They were aimed and directed to the first generations of Christians. Read Acts 8. There's a false teacher named Simon the Magician. What a name. Simon the Magician. He's trying to, to leverage and misuse the, 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 the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, for his own personal gain. John warns his readers over and over again, look out for false teachers. Look out for false teachers. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. The war that affected the Jews most significantly was the Jewish-Roman war that waged between AD 66 and culminated in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. That was the great war to the Jews. There were famines throughout the Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius from AD 41 to AD 54. Earthquakes an earthquake leveled the great city of Pompeii in A.D. 63. There was no persecution like the persecution of Nero in the Roman Empire. He was infamous for persecuting Christians during the 7th century. Jesus goes on to warn his disciples that they would be beaten in synagogues okay, and stand trial before kings and governors. Most of us here today have never entered a synagogue and we probably never will, right? You might get invited to a, I mean, I was invited to a bat mitzvah, but I never went into a synagogue, right? But Stephen was stoned in Acts for preaching the gospel in a synagogue. Peter was persecuted by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Paul, he actually did stand before Felix, the governor. He stood before King Agrippa, to testify for the sake of the gospel. He was enchained and imprisoned all the way to Rome for the sake of the gospel. You see, Jesus' words, they may apply to many of our circumstances, but they best fit what was happening to the early church. They best fit what would happen in Acts for the disciples 
and the apostles and those first Christians. But once again, like I shared, Jesus is not just giving doomsday promises and prophecies. He's pastoring his people. He's loving his disciples. He's shepherding them. And so even at the end, he says, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't don't be afraid when you stand before kings and governors. Don't be afraid in the midst of persecution. God, the Holy Spirit, will be with you. God, the Holy Spirit, will give you words. He will be filled. He will fill you. And over and over again, we see the saints in Acts being filled by the Holy Spirit and being strengthened to testify to the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the resurrected Lord. Jesus says all these things are birth pains, right? Um, I'm not gonna talk about birth pains, but birth pains preceding, preceding the birth, preceding that great event. And he says all of these trials, all of these tribulations, they are precursors to the great event. And that great event is the destruction of the temple. Now, let me say one word about the abomination of desolation. It sounds terrifying, doesn't it? The abomination of desolation. This is the first and possibly last sermon I'll ever preach on the abomination of desolation. But let's read verse 14 again. This is what Jesus says. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand in parentheses. I'm gonna talk about that in just a second. Then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. Now, that parenthesis is very important for us to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, it means that translators uh, believe that Mark is speaking. I know all of that passage in your Bible it might be red-lettered, and if it's red-lettered, we're like, Jesus is speaking. Uh, but, uh, but they just didn't like, make that in black. But the translators believe that Mark has added in a note, a little commentary to help readers. So it wasn't Jesus saying, quote, quote, let the reader understand. Uh, in fact, Jesus addresses hearers, not readers. You never have Jesus talking about, oh, read my word. He says, hear, hear my word. So Jesus always addresses hearers, not readers, but Mark is writing. He is writing to readers, and he's trying to help his readers understand what Jesus is saying about the abomination of desolation. The phrase comes not from Revelation. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel. It's in chapters 9, 11, and 12. You see, Daniel prophesied that the abomination would come to Israel. Because of Israel's sin, because of Israel's idolatry, because of her unfaithfulness, there would be judgment on their land, upon their country. That's what Daniel is prophesying. Once again, it's something that takes place in the temple. Uh, in Daniel eleven thirty one, this is what Daniel says. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, that is the warning. That is the prophecy. Somebody else is going to come in, take over your temple. They're gonna take away the standard God-decreed burnt offering and they're gonna do something completely different. They're going to defile your temple. It is going to be an abomination to you, an abomination to God. Now, we may not know this, but in Jesus' day, all the Jews understood what the abomination of desolation was. It took place in 167 BC. 
when a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes seized control of the temple. And you know what he did? He set up an altar to Zeus. He set up an altar to Zeus. And he did interrupt the burnt offerings. Israel was offering goats. They would offer rams. They would offer calves and birds, but they would never offer a pig. Why? Swine was unclean. Swine was unclean. You know what Antiochus did? Good old Antiochus. He took a pig into the temple and offered it as a burnt sacrifice. He brought an unclean animal into the holy house of God and laid that up as an offering. He also brought prostitutes into the temple as part of that idol worship. This was the desecration of the temple that took place in 167 BC. This was such an abomination to the Jews that they rose up in revolt. They rose, they took up arms again against uh, the Greek king, and this incited the Maccabean revolt. Okay, Maccabean revolt. So Jesus, he knows that this phrase may be unfamiliar to us here in 2019, but it was so familiar to the consciousness of the Jews. He uses it because it's an important phrase to the Jewish people. It's like when the Americans coined the phrase, remember the Alamo. That was a trigger. That was a trigger to the Americans. Or for us in a more modern context, never forget 9-11. Never forget 9-11. It's a reminder of a great tragedy in our personal, in our national, in our cultural history. The same was true for the Jews. The abomination of desolation is not just a scary sounding phrase. It pointed back to when the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. There's another marker. That's another marker that Jesus' prophecy is for those in Israel. There's another one. Because he says, when this happens, what should you do? All those who are in Judea should flee. Okay? I mean, there's, there's a regional focus. It's not just like, hey, if you're in Southern California, run away. Or if you're in Seoul, or if you're in New York, just, just flee and head for the mountains. What if you're like in the Great Plains, right? But, but he's specifically speaking to his hearers in Judea. Judea is not a metaphor here. He's talking about the literal region. When your city is sacked, when the temple is desecrated, when you are overrun by the Romans, head for the hills. And that they did. That they did. There's so much more to say, uh, but I've taken up too much time on that first point. Um, I want to wrap this up now uh, with uh, our closing relevance for us. How does this connect to our discipleship? How is this more than just a history lesson or like some, some, some Bible data, right? Uh, I have three points, okay, uh, to just connect for us application and relevance. The first is this. This passage teaches us that history is in God's hands. History is in God's hands. And as we study this passage, as we consider Jesus's words, we should be amazed by the prophetic accuracy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just speak vaguely. He doesn't just speak in platitudes. He speaks specifically. He has detailed knowledge of what will happen to his people. Um, Tony Romo, the great Dallas uh, quarterback, Dallas Cowboys uh, quarterback, when he retired, he became a, um, 
and an analyst. And he immediately became one of the most popular TV analysts, right? And his whole thing was he was able to, before the ball was even snapped, he'd be like, oh yeah, they're going to run to the right. And then they would run to the right. And then the next snap, he's like, yeah, they're going to pass left. And the quarterback would pass left. And so they gave him a title, a phrase, Romostrodamus, right? After Nostradamus, right? And they're like, oh man, he's like a wizard. He knows the future. And people were just so amazed that he would be able to call plays. And he's not even in the huddle. He doesn't even have their playbook. He just knows it by, by their alignment, okay? They're amazed by, we're amazed by Tony Romo because he knows where a pigskin is going. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we study this passage, we should be amazed at the prophetic authority and accuracy of Jesus. He was right about something that would take place 40 years later and the destruction of the temple, right? Could he be right about so much more, right? Would you and I be able to trust him in his word in his authority, and we should realize that history truly is not accidental, right? Time and events are not happening in this, like, this random, chaotic way. There are not an infinite number of possibilities, and nobody knows, not even God himself. That's open theism, and that's heresy. No, God has numbered our days. God knows all of the details, and in his decree, it is authoritative, it is perfect, it is final. History is in God's hands. And so are we. Because all of these events are in God's hands, we should also know that then, and so are our lives. So are our moments. So are our days. The second thing that we need to take away from this passage is to remember that the main point of Jesus' teaching is not just about cryptic future events and judgment and chaos. Jesus is teaching about discipleship. He's teaching about discipleship. And so we shouldn't get obsessed with signs and the events that Jesus is describing. We should embrace his commands about discipleship. What does he say to his disciples? See that no one leads you astray. Do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed when there are wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed when you see great tribulation and famines in the land. Be on your guard. Be on your guard when people come to try and lead you astray, to try and discourage you, to try and deceive you. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And then he offers a promise. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a promise to us. That if we abide in Jesus, if we remain in him, if we cling to him, if we trust in him, keep our eyes fixed on him, we will be saved. We will be saved. We will not be abandoned. We will not be forsaken. There is a crown of glory that awaits all who persevere in faith. Brothers and sisters, this is so important for us. Because we are a generation that does suffer with fear and anxiety. And he knows that. When difficulty comes our way, when trials come our way, we, we are anxious. We struggle. And I want to confess that to you as well as a pastor. I have financial anxiety. Every time uh, I'm in the car and I hear a radio ad saying there is going to be another just financial collapse in our country. 
If you thought the housing boom was bad, and you know, if you talk to financial analysts, they talk about it. They say the, the nice way to talk about it is a correction. There's going to be a correction in our economy. Uh, others people will, will talk more doomsday and be like, things are just going to crash and collapse. And they say, so what you need to do is buy gold. Buy gold. And I'm driving in my car, and I'm like, oh, man, I just bought a condo. I got a kid now. I got a marriage. I need to buy some gold. You know, I was like, I'm like, I need to protect my assets, right? If there's going to be a collapse, I need to be protected, right? And so I'm, I'm just saying this uh, as, as another vulnerable, weak brother. I am prone to fear. I am prone to anxiety. When things go wrong in my life, I become afraid as well. Jesus knows that. He knows us. And he wants us to, to not be overcome with fear to not be overwhelmed with that, but to be still and know that he is God. To remember that when we're in his hands, when we abide in him, there is rest and there's true comfort. You see, what I wanna do is secure comfort through gold, right? I'm like, gold is the future, right? I, I tried to buy a little bit of Bitcoin. I bought like one, like 0.02 of one Bitcoin once. And I was like, this is gonna be really awesome. And then it turned into nothing, right? We have all these ways of trying to secure comfort for ourselves. What Jesus offers is true and eternal comfort, perfect comfort and rest that this world cannot provide us. Take Christ at his word. He is shepherding us through all of our trials, through all of our tribulations. And he says, don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. Don't be anxious. Endure to the end, and you will be saved. Endure to the end, and it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. Number three, the last thing is this. No matter how desolate things may get for the disciples or things may get for us, never forget that Christ will return in glory. Christ will return in glory. I said that um, there's a section of what Jesus is talking about and he, he, he pauses and he lifts off of the temple because the temple is a foreshadowing of the final judgment. And in verses 24 to 27, he just points them in that direction. Okay? He says, yes, the destruction of the temple is going to be devastating. Okay? But all of that is a foreshadowing of the final judgment. And this is what he says, just to remind us. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then he says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. Do you hear Jesus' words? You will have tribulation in this world. Yes, it will sting. Yes, it will be fearful. Yes, it will be painful. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our victor. Christ has not 
and he will not abandon his elect. This is good news for us. He will surely return, and when he returns, he will come in power and in glory. He will wipe every tear from our eye. Every injustice will be judged, and he will grant life, flourishing, and glory for all those who have trusted in him. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, uh, he was like reflecting on the tension, the tension that we live in, where we're like, man, we want to see the gospel and we want to see the kingdom ever expanding, but then at the same time, things seem to be getting worse. We seem to have experiencing more tribulation, more troubles. Which is it? Is it getting better or is it getting worse? This is what he says. The condition of the earth is getting better and worse at the same time. That the gospel is spreading. The church is growing. There are more Christians in the world than ever there was. But at the same time, there is more opposition and there is hostility and there is difficulty. And the two can indeed live together. Brothers and sisters, that's the reality that we are living in right now. Between two worlds, there is a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There is that tension, but may we endure to the end. May we hold fast to Christ and know that, that he is and he will be victorious. Let's trust in him. Let's pray.